Welcome, welcome again to another rendition of WTF Interviews. My name is Sir Royce Brialis, and I'm with my prestigious co-host, Dr. Raheem Young. How's it going, my brother? I'm doing well, man. How things on your end? Oh, man, things are going great, man. The Bulls in first place almost. You know what I'm saying? You're doing good <laughs> in Chicago. <laughs> I, I couldn't say that for the last six to seven years, man. So, no, excuse me, man. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, also we have a special guest, uh, Kevin McCaskill. How's it going? All right, Sir Royce, how are you this evening? Uh, doing great, man. No complaints over here, man. So, uh, Kevin, let me ask you, man, uh, how many kids you got? Uh, what are their ages? And also, what do you do for a living or for a purpose? Well, I have four. The four, four the boys are the bookends, girls are in the middle, ages 35, 32, 26, and 22. And if you want even more, for uh, three grandchildren, age 16, 11, 16, 12, and two. And I've been the assistant superintendent in the Office of Secondary Schools for the Boston Public Schools. I've been in education for 34 years in three of the largest urban districts here in New England, uh, Boston, Springfield, Mass, and Hartford, Connecticut. And education's a passion. And it's really something that I hold dear to my heart. And I've been very blessed and very fortunate to be in this field for, for again, over 34 years, really doing my best to provide access and opportunity for all students, but primarily for our young men and women of color. Oh, that's cool. Can you talk about how like um, working with students like helped you as a father? Uh, I tell you, when you look, it, it's been, a catharsis at times, and it's and I think for a for a real, real positive reason because I I, I was a young father, I was a, I was a young father, age twenty two, and grew up without one. So when you're growing out without, how do you learn how to be a father without having that example and that role model going forward? Mm -hmm. But understanding that I you know you have to be responsible for any child that you bring into this world. That is your responsibility and understanding what it is that they need and, and where you have to be. And I, you know, get to the gist of the answer in a, in, a, in a moment. But I think I've gotten so much better from the first child to the last one. And it's because of the relationships, you know, you build with students inside, especially when you see those students who are without fathers or positive male role models in their lives outside of the school realm. And at times you are filling that void and even though they're not your biological child, you feel a connection to them because again, you're looking at that long-term, that long-term situation with them. If they don't have, again, growing up in the way that I did and really having to make mistakes because of no one to really guide that path or really someone that you could really lean on from a male perspective and just filling that temporary void really has to, what do I have to do as a father on a daily basis. So my children always feel that there is no void. There may be disagreements in the house, but they know that they have someone who will always provide for them, will always be in a position to support them, will always be there in their worst of times and in the greatest of times, will always be a presence. And will we'll at times have to provide that discipline at times, but that discipline is out of love. It's never out of hate. It's not a, just out of just, just out and out 
I should say you like my, my grandmother meanness. It's just, mm -hmm. we don't want you making these mistakes because I love you so much that these are the things because I, I grew up, my mother and my grandmother were old school. They were old school. And I, I think I grew up as an old school parent. And I think I've evolved more of a kind of a modern, but still with an old school flavor for my, my youngest child. But I think those are the things that I've learned throughout the years of how to really become a parent. Seeing certain things, when you see certain dynamics going on when you have a parent-teacher conference and you're seeing that dynamic going on between the child and, and the parent and you're seeing mm -hmm. disconnects. And it really gets you thinking, do I have those same disconnects with my children? Will my children tell me these things and if not, why is that? So it really make me, it made me become much more, you know, in, in years, the flow of years, I've become much more introspective. Whereas in the beginning, no, it was, you know, follow rule, it was zero sum. You're gonna follow these rules and this is how it's gonna be. As opposed to my last one, sitting down and really explaining things and going through and, and, and list doing a lot better measure of listening. Because I can tell you early on as a parent, you know, I took my mother and my grandmother's oh, no, we ain't listening. We, we just, we're going to react to what you're doing and then just keep it moving. Yeah. So speak to uh, just that. Like when you first became a dad, you said you made a lot of mistakes. So uh, what kind of mistakes were you making? You know, it was, it was really to the point of just, you know, when you, it's just, it's over, we're overbearing. You don't want them to, to make the mistakes that you've made. So it was very just strict, strict disciplinarian. You, you, you got a specific time you go to bed. When you get up, you know, if, if something happened and you talk back, you might, something might happen to you. You know, with all that old school, something's going to happen to you. And when you went to school, when you went to school, and even though I was in education when my, my oldest, when he started, you know, I was a middle school teacher at the time and he was starting, you know, I took my, I took again, my family's persona. If that school calls me, you did something. You did something. As opposed to saying, no, it probably did, but hear them out. I wasn't hearing anything out. The school doesn't call me just for foolishness. You did something, there's a consequence for it. So it was really one of those zero sum things. If something, if this, if I get a call, this is going to happen to you. And my son, you know, when you look at him and when we talk now, he's, you know, I was living in fear. And I said, yeah, children shouldn't live in fear like that. And it's not that he was abused or anything. Trust me, I mean, he's, he had a pretty decent life. <laughs> but it, it's something in which you were just so grounded that you want him to follow this narrow path so that he didn't look left or right, that you had this path set for him so that he wouldn't be, you know, tripped up by the obstacles of society that he, he had a mother and he had a father and they were together and that we will not make these and that you will not be, it was almost like you had to be perfect. And, you know, when I look back on it, I says, we are imperfect beings, but we expect our children to follow these, follow these perfect measures. Yeah. And so I really had to get on. And I think as I, as more children came on board and the deeper I've got into education, especially as an administrator, and really, again, as I indicated earlier, really being more introspective in my thinking, you really think, you know, it's not that you, you know, there are obviously measures in life. There are just things that we have to follow. We have to conform to certain things. But things shouldn't be so, so stringent that your children are almost fearful 
to do anything because in life, as you both, you know, gentlemen know, at times, you know, we have to take risk and not unhealthy risk or risk that, you know, really jeopardize our safety. But really those attempts to go out into the world to do more than what we think we can do. That may be leaving, leaving home, knowing that you have everything you need to be successful on your own. Mm -hmm. That may be trying a business venture of really going out and after, maybe going on to a school in which you know you feel, hey, I know it's gonna to be tough, but I think I can, I can handle that. Where you take those types of healthy risk. And sometimes we, you know, we kind of suppress that when we make things so stringent in a child's life. And I think, you know, I kind of, you know, I think that might've been my son, my youngest son. And again, I think as he started to get older and he got involved in a lot of other things, such as, you know, athletics and outside activities, you know, those were measures to really, you know, to really flourish and do some great things. But I think from, you know, really stepping out and being the man that I know he could be, you know, that might've been a stifling, that might've been a stifling time of his life early on and probably had an effect on him, you know, even up until today. Mm. So Kevin, I, I know that you were saying like you and your dad really didn't have a relationship. Um, did your mother like proactively try to put you around men to be like a positive influence for you? She really did. Yeah. And, and yeah, she really did. I mean, one, I, it's as strict as it was, she gave me the, it was something that was very unique. You know, it, when I when that, when you hear the buzz on that street light, you better be coming home. You better yeah. be in that house. But I was allowed to play sports. I was allowed to go out as long as, you know, I, I met her criteria and, you know, being very active in, in, in athletics and being able to stay after school to, to be involved in certain activities, sending me to camp in the summer to really, you know, just to open up my, open up my world a bit, but always having men in the neighborhood growing up in the city of Patterson, you know, there were always men in, but in those men that would really, that she trusted, you know, saying, you know, the guy, it was the, the bus driver down the street or the man who was a plumber down there who'd see mm -hmm. you on the street playing and just so you, or you get to know him because he takes up a trade and you know, and he makes good money, but he goes to work every day. And these were the men who would talk to you every single day. And, you know, and I think as a young man, I can share with you, I, I needed more, you know, I needed more. I needed that, that, that body that was literally a 24 hour, 24 hour monitor. Yeah. And because that, as you both know, you know, black boys needs, they need, they need men. They need men in their lives when they hit that, the pre-adolescent into adolescence it, it's so it's so needed and that is something where my mother really she really liked the coaches always had good coaches for some you know i was very fortunate to have that some some white some black you know but they were always there to really do something so I, I really have to applaud my mother for really making that an emphasis because i my mother was you know she, i love her to death 81 years of age still going strong in new jersey but she had the foresight to say, you know what, I, at a certain age, there's not too much more I can do. I can love him. I can beat him to death when he, when he started acting up. But it's something that I'm, I can't bring from a woman perspective, from a woman's perspective, that he needs this male, these male figures. And, and she provided, you know, my uncle was a big influence in my life. Uh, he recently passed away a couple of years ago, but big influence in my life. And I'm so thankful to have him, you know, especially at certain times. But, you know, it's nothing like someone that's your father. 
that's always there. It's nothing like that. There's just no substitute. Yeah, I like to like uh, I like to ask uh, parents that have had kids for twenty plus years. You have a thirty-five year old. Like I'm uh, <laughs> two years older than that to give you context. Like you can be my dad, literally. Like, <laughs> this is a. <laughs> but uh, what would you say is uh one of your WTF moments? Like your welcome to fatherhood moment. Out of all the thirty-five years of experience being a dad, like what's one or two uh, stories you can kind of lean on? Like, damn, this happened. Wow. You know what? You know, Sir Royce, the actual birth of your child. That it's like, you know, and I'm going to the first one. It's like, this is real. <laughs> this is, this is, this is going, this is happening. And, I, and you're never prepared. And the simple fact that at age 22, I wasn't even used to holding a child. I never, I never held a baby. I made it a point. I ain't holding nobody's baby. As a teen, I ain't hold because I was scared I'm going to drop it, number one. Number two, what am I supposed to do with it? But when that child comes in your arms, and this is with all of them. It is such a wow moment. And it's just, this is something in which I've been blessed, you know, and it's a, it's a cliche, but I believe in it wholeheartedly. I've been blessed. I've been blessed. And so the actual birth, and then the actual times when they're actually put, you know, I always say there's several wow moments. It's a, when they're playing sports and I, I coached junior college basketball for 20 years. And, you know, I was one of those old John Chaney, John Thompson type coaches, but when they actually play sports, they sit back. And I always said, look, I'm going to sit way away from everyone else. So nobody else will be near me. So I don't want, I'm not going to say too much, but it was a wild moment to see them participating just to participate. And, you know, a couple of my children were very, you know, they're pretty good athletes and just to see them, and just and just sit back and say wow, and knowing that all the practices that you had to bring them to, the driving back and forth, the leaving work early, you know, all those things, but to see them really excelling in something that they have a passion for, and then graduation, graduation, high school graduation, because you see all the trials and tribulations that some of sometimes that occurs, you know, especially with teenagers. But to see them walk through, and you're thinking about all those times when they were young, when you were enforcing, forcing them to read 20 minutes a night, overseeing all those homework and getting frustrated about them not doing homework and getting the look, they got to do the homework, you know, and just hearing them ranting about this teacher is not this good and this person's bothering me. And then, but to see them walking across that stage and knowing what their post-secondary opportunities that, that exist for them going forward. It makes you sit back and go through the recesses of your mind of all these things over like a seven, eight, 17 and 18 year old period. And it just comes and you know, if, you, if you're out, you're gonna experience, you're gonna experience it, trust me. And those are wild moments. And then I've had three that have graduated from college. And that's just, you know, even, you know, just, what I just mentioned to the second power, because you can just go in and realize it now. They like they're actually adults. Now they're actually adults walking through here. And then they hear, and then just to hear them talk as adults and talk about issues. And I'm saying this is the same person 
that I couldn't even get to eat vegetables and, and arguing about vegetables, you know, 25, you know, for 25 minutes. And here they are talking about societal things, talking about, you know, what, you know, what, how things work in their, in their, in their particular field, in their particular fields and how, you know, my daughter actually moved to Las Vegas and she said, wow, 32 years old. And, and, you know, she worked for the casino in Springfield and now go in, you know, and they asked her to come to the home office in uh, Vegas and say, wow, this same person that struggled through school, but yet can talk, you know, talk this lingo to the point where she's in the upper echelon of management. So it's a great thing to see that growth, that growth. And those are just, you know, Sir Royce, I'll keep going for two hours with this, but it's just something where you just see the evolution of your child. And, you know, for me, my children going forward, and it's just been, like I said, I can probably name off, rip off five more, but I know we have a limited amount of time. Yeah, you got grandchildren too, man. So. <laughs> um, that's, that's, but see, the, the beauty part about grandchildren, hey, you can go home to your parents. <laughs> <laughs> you go home to your parents. After I've had enough, you go home now. Right. <laughs> so let, let, let's stay on this trip down memory lane. Can you talk about, uh, can you talk about how, I guess your first thought when you got the news, the 21, well, 22 year old Kevin, when you got the news that you were going to be a dad, how was that for you? It was like that pause, that pause that I just had. That's what it was. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was that type of pause. And, you know, you don't want to go to the point. Is it mine? I said, nah, I was too smart for that. You know, you're too smart for that. But it was just like, what am I going to do? You know, internally, what am yeah. I going to do? And it was just something in which the next thing is telling my mother this, <laughs> you know, telling my mother. Mm. And, you know, she was really good about it, but I think it's really just making me understand, like, wow, what, what does this mean? Because that means your life changes. Yeah. That means there's no more, hey, no more going to the club, you know, when you want to go. There's no more just going out. Of there's just none of that. And at the time, I know I wasn't making a great deal of money. And now, you know, as, as everyone knows, I mean, the baby, babies aren't cheap. And so how do we really start doing? So working a few jobs, you know, while coaching, while before I was, you know, before I was in the private industry, before I got into teaching, but how do I make ends meet? And that was something that was constantly on your mind, you know, just wanting to do everything right, where I never wanted to have my child have the excuse that they were never provided for. That, that's something that really, that was really heavy, that stayed heavy with me is that no, I don't, what if, if it's something as simple as a jacket, I don't care what it is, we're going we gonna to get those jackets. If it's something, they're always going to have food on the table. Heat's never going to be turned off. Gas never going to be turned off. And then what are those things I have to do to prepare them to do things that I was allowed to do? Again, play sports, participate in clubs and organizations. What, what's the best? So you really have to start and then when it came to what school they're going to go to. And so all this is going on like two days after being told hey, you're going to be a dad. So all these thoughts are going through your mind. So I, I think I had to grow up. I had to grow up really fast. I had to grow up really fast. Okay. So um, what do you know of, of your dad? I know he worked in the post office for quite a while. I mean, about 30, 30 something plus years. And I actually, I, I saw him 
I might have saw him from a from the time I was born. Obviously, well, I could recognize him mm-hmm. to the time that I left Patterson. I mean, if, if I saw him maybe 10 to 15, 10 to 15 times and always, mm-hmm. I mean, just nice enough, man, nice enough guy, nice enough guy. And, my, you know, my kids would you used to ask, do you, do you dislike your dad? And I was like, do you hate him? Do you have scorn? And then the answer is always no. I mean, you know, because I don't, I never, we never had the opportunity to talk through this. And I wish I had the opportunity to talk, you know, at this, at a, as an adult to really, you know, what was your, what was your thinking about the time, you know, when I was ages two to 16, two to 18, you know, why didn't he, why, why weren't you there? And then you show up at my last college, one of my last college basketball games after I hadn't seen you in five or six years, you show up for a game. And then I don't see, then I don't, you know, then I don't see you again for seven more years. And so I really wanted to understand that. And I, it was, but it was never from a place of blaming him or hate. And I'll share this with you too. I mean, he had three other kids that I've never met. I mean, I've got a, two brothers and a sister that I have never met. And so it's this intrigue and that, you know, I, I mean, I, I couldn't tell you if my father was dead or alive. I couldn't tell you that. Mm. And so it's a, it's that disconnect of family, you know, and it's kind of, and it goes, you know, with, with our legacy, some of our legacies of, you know, again, America is not our home and we were disconnected from our mother, you know, from our mother country, but we really don't know where we were from, from the motherland. So it's that disconnect and that disconnect still continues today. But again, mm-hmm. that was something in which, you know, again, I go back to that, what I said earlier about my children never, ever not knowing one, who their father, who is father, who, who their father is, but number two, that they will always be provided for regardless of the situations that we that may occur with me and, and their mothers and the such. So, but I, it's always something that comes back to me, uh, Raheem, every now and then of saying, what would that conversation be like right now with me and my father? And again, I know it wouldn't come from a, from a position or a feeling of hate. It was just like, I just want to know, you know, also almost like some closure. Yeah. Uh, how do you think uh, going through that experience impacted you as a father? I think the impact that it had is I never wanted my children to never not know who I was. And what I, and what I mean by that, that there was a presence of, of if the presence of their father, every, I mean, it was just all over the place. Sometimes I was overbearing with them too, but that I cared about them. I loved them. I showed that love. And sometimes, you know, it was through discipline, but sometimes it was just showing up to a school play that I told them I might not be there. And all of a sudden I'm standing in the back, being at every game, being at every, and I, t- I don't know if you guys have daughters and those little, um, what do you call them? The, the, the dances, the, um, <laughs> the, 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 the five hour marathons that the you got to re- sit. The recitals. Oh, yeah. oh my Lord. <laughs> oh my Lord, man. <laughs> But sitting through those and, you know, and, and just always understand that we, that I will always be a presence and not a presence that, you know, that I want to be domineering, but you always know that you have a support 
a support system for the rest of your life. For the rest of your life, you've got someone who is always going to be there to help you through the, the darkest of times, celebrate at the, the best of times, and really, really, really help your growth, your growth as you go on to raise your kids. Or my youngest daughter who says she never wants to have kids. And I said, well, that's your choice. <laughs> that's your choice. But that regardless of your, your wanting children or not, I love you for who you are and what you do and will always be here for you. So I want to uh, switch gears a little bit. Mm -hmm. I know you, um, you say you grew up, you, you, you was an athlete, right? And you played yeah. basketball. So who was the best player you've ever played against and played with? The best player, I think I played, one of the best players I ever played against. Now, I'm, like I said, I'm going on 60 years of age, fellas. <laughs> You're making me go back into the, to the time warps of things. <laughs> I think from a basketball perspective, there's a player by the name of Gary Springer. Gary Springer played for Iona. He was an All-American for Iona. And we had a, there was a tryout a European for Europe, you know, to go over to Europe to play. Mm. And you'd see this guy on TV and next thing you know, playing. and I played with him. And I said, Lord knows I couldn't play against this man, but he was, he was, he was really, I mean, he was a hell of a player. He was a real, I mean, he was a dynamite player. And I think one of the, one of the top players that I've ever played against, and I don't know, again, his, his name is Champ Godbolt. Champ played for Holy Cross. He started at the University of Maine, but he ended up at Holy Cross, and he was just phenomenal. I mean, he played it. He played overseas until his late forties. That's mm -hmm. I mean, this cat was just. He's from the he's from Springfield. Unbelievable. His name was Champ Godbolt. Champ, Champ Godbolt. That's the best basketball name yeah, ever. Champ <laughs> Godbolt, man. He was. He, he he was. I tell you, you know. He, he, I mean, he was hard. He was hard to play. He could shoot the rock. He's about six two, six three, and I tell you, he get, he'll get he'll he'll get many people on skates. He'll get you on skates for a little bit, but just a not. But but again, we were just competitors throughout. I mean, we just go at each other all the time. But you got to respect his game. But his longevity, his longevity in the game. We went over down to South America to play. And he, I mean, he played a long time. That's a champ, man. I said, man, I ain't played in 20 years. This cat is still hooping, man. <laughs> Professionally, still hooping. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty cool, man. Like, um, I remember me and Royce, we did an interview with the, the guy who was like the, the best player I ever played against. And I told a story on the. Um, I told a story on the podcast on how he he dunked on me. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he made he made it seem like it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't nothing. It was just a thing. Like he he dunked on people all the time. Yeah, but, like that was just part, that was just part for the course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. So I, I always that's find it interesting to ask people like who, you know, if they're athlete, who was the best player you ever played against and like just having the memories. Yeah, I mean, it's 
it, it's been several dudes. And I, I can I tell you, I go back. I remember the first time I got dunked on in college. And it's one of those things I used to like, I was one of those guys who like to, you know, hunt people down and block your shot on the board. Like you thought you had a layup and I just pin it on the glass on the backboard. Yeah. I thought that was just the funniest thing. So I, <laughs> I, I just thought, you know, cause I used to do it in high school, you know, you do it in high school. So I got the college, a freshman in college. I played the United States, I played division two. And one of this guy, and I still know it, this guy, the guy's name to the Steve Parham from Springfield College, from New York, probably from New York, about 6'6". Six, six. Now at the time, I think I was about 6'2". He got a steal, probably a little bit less than half court. So he's dribbling down. Man, I have to have that perfect angle. Man, when I went up, and when I saw his elbow going over my hand, <laughs> you know he's trying. <laughs> he's still going up. <laughs> he, man, he, hey, Sir Roy, he's still going up today. <laughs> uh, he's like, he didn't come down yet. He's still on the on going up. <laughs> and then he just looked, and he's, and then I think he looked at me and said, "Freshman." <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to college. Welcome to college basketball. Made me think. I said, "I got I can't wait till I start dunking on it." Sure enough, I think I thank Steve for all the it's the times that I got the, the opportunity not to return the favor on him, but on other people. <laughs> <laughs> That's what, still good too. Yeah. <laughs> What's your your proudest uh, dad moment? Like watching your sons, um, you know, uh, uh, compete. Believe it or not, one of the proudest moments, my youngest one, my youngest is probably the best athlete, you know, the family. I mean, he was a basket, basketball and soccer. He actually, he has one more year. He's a college, he plays Division II soccer up at St. Mike's. But he was an all-state soccer player, you know, all-conference basketball player. But his in his senior year, they had just graduated most of their seniors the previous year. So he was like the lone senior and, and had to be the leader of this team. And he did an out, you know, he, and I'm not saying it because he's my son, but he did a, he had an outstanding season. He ended up making all-state. But their last game, you know, in the, in the tournament, and it was a great game. Cold as heck up here, man. It was just – but they were out there playing, and they – you know, it was, I think it was a 2-2 tie. So they played the overtimes, nothing. So they had to go to the penalty, you know, the uh, penalty kicks at the end. Long story short, they lost the penalty kicks. And so, again, I, I always make it a point. I'm going to travel anywhere to see them. This was out in the boondocks here in Massachusetts. But, you know, as they're coming off and, you know, so the kids are coming and, you know, and I said, I can experience this when you know it's your last game. That's it. There is no more. There's just no more playing, you know, for this, for your height, for your career. And he had just, you know, just finished a phenomenal season. And I could just see, you know, him coming over and we always greeted each other afterwards. But he was one of the last to come off the field. And I could see that, you know, getting the pain, but I, you know, I had to say, man, I'm proud of you. And when I tell you this, gentlemen, I mean, we embrace and that the tears were coming from both our eyes, man. And it was just like, it was, you know, like the pain, his pain was being transferred to me, but the love that I had for, for him was coming out through me into him. And 
it seemed like an eternity that we were out there because I was just so proud that he left it all out there and did his best and, and really was a role model for his teammates for the entire season and even into, you know, this final, this final game, this final match going forward. And I was never so proud of him. And I think the, the emotion just got to both of us. But I just re recall that because someone said, well, that's kind of, I said, no, but if you understand the bond that you have with, children, with, with your children, you know, it's it's almost it's I can't even put it into correct words. I would be doing it an injustice, but that was of seeing the body of work that he had all year, and what he had to really fight through and really command, quote unquote, his team because it was his team that year, and to get that far and to come up short. But I was proud the way he handled himself throughout. And, you know, I think that that's something and I shared with him, you know, when he went on to play in college, I says, no matter what you do, I'll never forget that moment. Because that moment was special in time because it was through defeat. It was through a defeat that you had a spark, a really shining moment, man, that you just became, you just became a person, man. You became a person that cared about something. It was much greater it was much greater than just losing the game. And this something meant something to you. And I said, I hope you get that feeling with your children. And so that's something that was really a proud moment. And then to see the accolades that were thrust upon them, you know, after the end of the season, I mean, it was just tremendous. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so uh, speak to um, your daughters a little bit. So. Uh, <laughs> I have a daughter myself, Dr. Young. He has two. So how old, uh, how old, how old are they? How old are they? My my baby girl is four. Okay. It's going on 40 though. So <laughs> <laughs> my mine are 16 and 9. Oh, so you so you, you yeah, you're at the age. And they have one coming to the age. But I tell you, the girls and the boys say, you don't do nothing to the, you know, it was, it, yeah, I do, it was double standard. Now, they got discipline too, but nowhere near the boys. <laughs> nowhere near the boys. And with the girls, it was always, you know, I, my biggest fear was always boys. I knew how I was growing up. And I said, oh boy. And I made it a point, when I, not too many boys visited the house. <laughs> and if they did, it, they, they were made very uncomfortable that they wouldn't want to make a second trip to the house. But they were, I mean, they, they, they were the, the questioners. The boys usually were, look, if I say something, I don't want to hear nothing else. And the girls, well, why? Well, why? And then you know, I think that was a piece because they knew that they had a, there was a soft spot for them. But they were really... They were one much smarter than the boys. I always say that. They were just much more smarter than the boys, and not just academic. I mean, academically, because I think they were all. I think they're about equal with, with how they perform, but they were just. They knew how to play parents. They knew how to do that. But I also knew that there was a special way that being a, a man, being a, a male, being a father. And there are certain things that I had to lose of being uncomfortable, especially when girls start hitting puberty. I had to lose some of that. And I know with the oldest one, it was kind of hard. I said, go talk to your mother about that. That's not me. But really coming when they, you know, with those things when their first cycle comes, you know, understand that, you know, I can buy you tampons. You know, don't, don't sit there and wait and then have something occur. 
but really having those types of conversations in which they weren't awkward, you know, again, at first they were extremely awkward. And then with the youngest one, you know, when my youngest daughter, you know, it became almost like second nature, but really understanding who they were being a fear, especially being females of color, understanding who they were and really putting them in a position that you can be whatever you want to be. I don't care who says what, but your father says you can be whoever you want to be. And those are things in which we really wanted, you know, the, you know both, as both parents want to instill in them that it was possible. You know, one, my oldest one really had a difficult time in, high, in, in school, had some real difficult times really adjusting, but, you know, came out a superstar in post-secondary. And you really have to really, and I think we, we didn't spend enough time understanding those things. You know, it's like, why can't you just get it right? As opposed to, well, tell me what's wrong. Tell, tell us what's wrong and let's work through it. And I think that really helped out with uh, my youngest, with the younger one and saying, well, well, talk to us. We were more open. And it goes back to always learning from previous mistakes. A parent, one of the parents I had many years ago had the greatest line. I asked him if I could steal that line. That's because I'm gonna use it for the rest of my life. Uh, it, was a it was a problem with his son. And he says, I keep coming to school for the same situation. He says, man, you keep tripping over the same log. And mm -hmm. I, said, well, I said, oh, hey, man, I'm gonna use that forever. And so as from a parent, fast forward as a parent, I never wanted to trip over the same log. So learn from those things and, and listen as, you know, as the kids were getting older and listening to, you know, I always hear from my oldest son, about, you know, about the youngest one. This guy had no rules, this, that, and the other. I said, yeah, but look how carefree he is. He's willing to take risks. Hmm. He's willing to take risks, whereas you don't take those risks. And that's primarily not of your doing, it's how you were raised. And so when we start really learning who we are as a parent and really admitting and again, you have to come to grips to admit that, yeah, I made mistakes. And I got better, and I, sh I shared this with us. I got better with each, with each child, I got better. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and at 60, I know I ain't having no more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this, that's it. But even with the grandchildren, with the first grandchild, you get better with the, as each one comes along. So those, but with the girls, it was just that uniqueness of getting over that awkward one, being raised by women and always being around a lot of women. And that was something in which, you know, when you asked me about it, about school, who did I have problems with? Women teachers, because I was always around them and they're always telling me something to do. And I'd never talk back to my mother or my grandmother, but boy, when I went to school, that was a different story. I think I had to lose that and the awkward of really just telling them how I felt. I had to grow into that. And I think the, the girls taught me invaluable lessons about that, about those aspects of my life, of how I had to mature in certain ways, how I had to grow, not only as a father, but as a male, I had to grow into that role. I know you just, um, you spoke on like, what your daughters taught you about yourself, what, what your children taught you about yourself, what has your relationship with your wife taught you about yourself? It's the same evolution, the same evolution. And, I, and I'll share, you know, again, I've been married three times, three times. Mm -hmm. And each time again, growing, getting better. At 22, at the, with my friend, I just wasn't ready. And 
and you do things out of obligation because it's the right thing to do, but it, it being, you know, what you feel is the right thing to do causes other problems, then it's not the right thing to do. And, and just really being truly and truly committed to it. And I think with each time I've been, like my current wife is outstanding. I wish I had met her 20 something years ago. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd met her 20 years ago, but you grow to be a more, more accepting, more loving, more open-minded, individuals and and you learn to accept people for who they are and not who, what you want them to be yeah. and i think i had to again grow into that and you know with the second marriage it was much better than my first but i think that's when i got more into the career the career started getting in the way because i was growing as an educator where i was an administrator and you know you started start sniffing yourself a little bit and you start getting some headlines and all these other pieces but you start really moving away from those things that keep you rooted. And so we were growing apart. And my second wife is probably one of my best friends, probably one of my best friends. And, um, and, and again, it, it's something where you can leave because, you know, it's not, I couldn't, can't say that for the first one, but my current, it, but those two situations have led me to, to my, to my, again, I always say this is it for me, and I ain't getting married again either. <laughs> but to the point where you learn how to truly love someone for who they are, you grow with that. That it's it's it is unconditional, and it's and it's to the point where you're thinking of things to really make folks not just be happy, but boy, they got joy. Getting people around you to have joy, your significant other to have joyous moment, joyous moments all the time, just doing things that may not be an occasion and you just buy flowers or an occasion where you just go out for dinner and those things and just sitting down for an evening and it's in the best place to be is right in front of the TV with the one that you love. That's the type, that's how I, you know, again, the evolution of Kevin McCaskill from a personal relationship perspective has grown and, and I'm loving every minute of it, loving every minute of it. Do you feel like your first two prepared you for this one? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to say it one more time. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we, we're getting close to time. So I have uh, one last question. Maybe Dr. Young has one too, but this has been uh, a great interview. Kevin, I appreciate this, man. This has been awesome. <laughs> It's been an honor. It's truly an honor, gentlemen. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so the question I want to ask you, really already asked it, and uh, you gave me a real good answer. Uh, my, the question was, uh, Kevin, what does fatherhood mean to you? And uh, you said fatherhood uh, means a lot of things. A provider, caregiver, role model, listener, sacrificer, giver of time, supporter, empathizer, unconditional love, and a host of other things. Fatherhood is one of the greatest gifts known to mankind. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> can you, uh, I pretty much been speaking on a lot of those things throughout this whole time, but can you elaborate on that a little bit more for us? There, there's not, to me, there, there's just nothing else. Being a father, being a father is such a, and again, being a, a man of God, it is just, it's just a blessing. And I want to repeat it. It's just a blessing that not everyone has this opportunity and not everyone has these opportunities to get it right. And for, for, for only God knows he gave me this opportunity with this, with the kids that, you know, that he has given me. 
and he's giving me a charge. He's giving me that charge to raise these kids, you know, and through his eyes to really be the best people, no matter what they do, to be the best people they can be. And they may take different routes to do it. And it is my job, it's my duty, it's my responsibility to support and nurture that path for, for, my, for my children and for my grandchildren. <clears throat> and, that's, and I don't take it lightly, and I just don't take it lightly. And I think most men do. I think the vast majority of men do. And, you know, I say what I do is not special. It's just something that I feel that it's, it is my responsibility. I, I don't need to get an extra paycheck or my name in a paper for father of the year. That is my duty to do that. And, and I own it. I love it. And I, and I think, you know, when the Lord finally calls me home, I can finally look my maker in the eyes and Lord, thank you for giving me this opportunity. And please make sure that these kids do the same, provide them with the same opportunities you provided me. Wow, powerful stuff. 